So we've been talking for the last several weeks uh, about identity, and uh, today we're kind of wrapping up this sermon series talking about our identity uh, as a church community in being a, a gospel-centered family on mission, a gospel-centered family on mission kind of sent to the Nazareth area to live out the kingdom of God and to invite people further into it. Uh, meaning that we want to have our identity centered on simply Jesus, on the gospel, uh, that we are, we said the gospel is that we are more rebellious and sinful than we care to admit, but we are more loved by God uh, and, and adopted by him as a father than we probably realize. And, and in that love, God adopts us into his family. He makes us sons and daughters of his and puts us into a family that gets to live out the mission of loving others, serving them and telling them about the kingdom of God. Uh, and in that, that idea of mission, we talked about being sent last week, right? We talked about how Je- as Jesus was sent, we are sent to be ambassadors, to go out into the world, to, to look like God, as image bearers of God, who share the love of the Father with the world around us, inviting people into the family of God. Now, as a family, we like to celebrate together. We like to eat together. So uh, one of the things we're going to do today to celebrate is, is to take communion together, which is called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, some of you uh, might call it. And, and so what I want you to understand, though, is that this, this Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion is, is much older than just the Christian church. It's actually tied into something ancient, something that came onto the scene 2,000 years before Jesus even walked the earth. It has its roots in something very ancient. And, and this idea of a family that we talk about regularly here actually is an old idea as well. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and it goes into the, the people of Israel, our spiritual, what I would say is our spiritual ancestors. Now, if you remember, uh, we talked about the idea that, that sin entered into the picture in the Garden of Eden and, and wrecked God's uh, plan for humanity. And, and God made a promise to Adam and Eve, and he said, I'm going to send someone from your lineage who's going to deal with this sin. If you remember, we talked about that. And, and God ends up uh, moving to a guy named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, this sin is going to be dealt with, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And so Abraham goes on with his wife, Sarah, to have Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who end up becoming the tribes of Israel. They end up becoming this huge family, and they become the nation of Israel. And during a famine, Israel finds themselves looking for food, and they, and they move to Egypt where they look for food. And they find food there, and they start to put roots down there. But what happens is they start to become so numerous that the Egyptians say, this is a bad thing for us, they're going to overpower us, so they start to subjugate them to slavery. And so Israel finds themselves enslaved to, to Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. Now, these are the people of the promise, waiting for God to deliver them, waiting for God to move them into the promised land that he had told Abraham about. And so they pray and they pray, and God sends a deliverer in the man Moses. Remember the story of Moses? Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, God says you need to let his people go. They want to, they want to leave and go worship God in the promised land, and Pharaoh says no time and again. And God sends plague after plague after plague on Egypt until finally, it's like trying to force Pharaoh's hand to relent and to let the people of Israel go so they can move into the promised land. Pharaoh will not let them go, and eventually God tells Moses to warn Pharaoh that he's going to send an angel of death over the land of Egypt that is going to kill all of the firstborn children and the firstborn animals if Pharaoh doesn't let the people go. So Moses warns Pharaoh, and Pharaoh still says, I'm not going to let them go. But also, at the same time, God tells the people of Israel, he says, if you take the blood of an innocent lamb, 
a slaughter lamb, and you paint it on the doorposts of your home, when this angel of death passes over Egypt, it, it will, or moves over Egypt, it will actually pass over you, and you will be spared this, this plague. Your children will live. And so the Israelites, the, they, they take slaughtered lambs, and they take the blood, and they paint it over the doorposts of their home, and, and this angel of death moves over Egypt, and all of, all of Egypt's children, the firstborn children, perish. And Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. And, and Scripture says that the, the, the Israelites move out and they take everything with them. And the Egyptians bless them with gold and silver. And they send them out wealthy. And, and they, they start going through the desert. And, and what we see is that they come to the edge of the Red Sea, if you remember. And, and they don't know how they're going to get across. And God sends this, this mighty wind. And they pass through the water. The water parts and they pass through the water. And there's a tower, this pillar of fire. If you, if you remember this story in the Old Testament, there's this pillar of fire that protects them and guides them and leads them through as the wind pushes back the water and parts it for them to walk through on dry land. And so there's this, this exodus starts to happen. This exodus happens and Israel moves through the desert and the pillar of fire is leading them. And do you remember, 50 days later, they end up at Mount Sinai. 50 days later, they end up at, the, at this, this mountain, this holy mountain that sets apart and, and God comes down in a rush of wind and fire and a storm and, and he comes there and he makes a new covenant with the people there. He says, I'm going to re-up this covenant that I made with Abraham and I'm going to make it with you. And remember, he, he carves into rock, he writes the Ten Commandments and Moses gives them to the people and it's this sort of re-upping of the commitment that God's making to the children of Israel and the children of Israel are in turn supposed to re-up their covenant with him and commit to be uh, godly people who will, who will live out what they call the law. And this law was meant to connect them to God, to connect them to one another with love. If you remember, Jesus says about the law, he says it's, it's all about loving God and loving others. And this is what God is calling the children of Israel to 50 days after Passover when he gives them the new covenant at Sinai. And during this time when he sets up this new covenant with the people, he also sets up these seven feasts, these seven uh, holidays that they're supposed to celebrate. You can read this in Leviticus 23, where God lays out that they're supposed to remember all that God has done for them, that they're supposed to set apart days of the week, days of the year on their calendar, that they will remember everything that God has done to be faithful for them, that they will remember Passover, that they will remember all the provision that God has given them. So they, there's holidays set apart to come and bring grain offerings to the altar and all, you know, fruit and all these things to come and, and honor God for his provision for them. And they became these traditions for the people. Now, traditions are interesting. We just came through one. Um, most of you probably celebrated Thanksgiving, and we come through these, these traditions in our country as well. And traditions are an interesting thing. They, they shape us they remind us of things, they bring things to, to memory, and they even, I don't know about you, but for me, they, they cause these emotional or sort of visceral reactions when we go through them. Like, I can remember going to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving for probably the first 20 years of my life, and we would go to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving, or we'd go to my grandfather's house on Christmas morning after we opened our presents at my house, we would go to my grandfather's house, and, and when I think about these traditions now, I can, I can picture going to my aunt's house, and I can smell the wood stove. Do you know what I mean? That my uncle had. And, and it brings back something. Or I, I remember going to my grandfather's house for Christmas, and I can, I can hear this little decoration that he had that had a little pull string on it, and you would pull it, and it would play this Christmas carol. And I can still hear the string being pulled and the, and the sounds that came back. And, and, and what it does is when I think about them, they remind me of family. They remind me of, of where I've come from. They remind me about what I am a part of as a member of this family. And so 
It's really for these reasons that God sets up these traditions, that God sets up these holidays so that the people will, will remember God's plan for them, that the people will remember God's faithfulness to them and leading them through the Passover, into the Exodus, to giving them the law, to giving them all that he's provided for, for them. Remind them to stay faithful to God, to remind the next generation of all that God has done for them, to stay true and stay faithful to their side of the covenant. But what we know is that Israel doesn't remain faithful, right? We talked about this, is that Israel doesn't remain faithful. They walk away from the covenant. They decide to start worshiping other gods. They start worshiping themselves. They're not loving neighbors. They're not loving the aliens that are among them. And God eventually says, okay, I'm going to take my hand of grace away from you. And they get moved into slavery. God allows them to be carried into captivity, and they end up becoming slaves again to the countries of Assyria, Babylon, Syria, Rome, and God allows this to happen. But what we talked about, though, is that we see Jesus move into their exile. Jesus is born into a a country of slaves of Israel, and they're, they're living under slavery to Rome, and he becomes a new Moses for them. A Moses who's going to walk them through a new exodus towards the promised land, but not just out of the slavery to Rome, per se, but slavery to sin and slavery to death. And during the Passover feast, somewhere around 30 AD, Jesus is celebrating Passover like a good Jewish man would. He's celebrating Passover with his disciples. And and he institutes another new covenant. Like God had done at Mount Sinai, he institutes a new covenant. And he says, rather than just celebrating the Passover with a lamb, rather than celebrating with wine and bread like you always have, they were to enter into a new covenant. And they were to partake of of his body when they were taking the bread. They were to partake of, of his blood when they take the wine. And in him, in Jesus, there's this new covenant of life and of love that Jesus is giving to them. He says, now I want you to go and live this out now. And they were to become a new family on earth, bearing the image of God to the world around them and loving people into the kingdom. And so when we take part in, in the Lord's Supper, we, we are remembering thousands of years of God's faithfulness, going all the way back to our spiritual ancestors, the children of Israel. We are remembering God's faithfulness to bless the nations through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel, and then ultimately through Jesus. We're remembering that sin leads to death and that we need a new Passover lamb in Jesus to spare us. We're remembering that we've been freed from slavery to sin and death and moved into the family of God. And we're remembering that as a family, we are to be image bearers of God. And we are to carry him out as ambassadors into the world to show his love to the world around us. Now, we may not have been in Egypt. We may not have been at the cross. But we join together and remember that. We, we join in and remember the faithfulness of God. Now, I want you to think about this before we move into communion. That for some of us, sometimes this becomes just an act. It becomes something we just do and don't think about all that has transpired to bring this about. So I would encourage you to take time to, to let this remind you that this is symbolic of Jesus' body. This is symbolic of, of a beaten, bloodied Jesus on a cross dying to save the world of their sins. Let it remind you that, that his blood truly was shed, that a man lost his life, and that... that Life was killed so that we could have in exchange full life, despite our guilt and despite our sin.
And I'd like you to remember that that Jesus is worthy of his name, that he is worthy to be called Emmanuel. He's worthy to be called Lord. He's worthy to be called God. And he's worthy of our praise, and he's worthy of our devotion. So we're going to take communion in a minute. I'm going to ask Krista and Jody to come up. uh, You guys come up right now. We're going to sing a new song before we move into communion together. And what I'm going to ask you to do is um, to sit, to pray, to, to let this idea of communion and the Passover speak to you. Um, if you want to sing along, feel free to sing along. You don't have to. And just maybe just soak in the words a little bit. So we're going to sing it once. And then hopefully I will remember to come up and dismiss you to go back and take communion. So there's bread back there already broken apart. For those of you who might not be used to this way of doing communion, there's bread broken apart. There's a cup of juice back there. You can dip it in. You can take it when you feel ready. Uh, You don't need to wait for everybody to do it as a group because it's group exercise. Um, So we're going to sing the song. Feel free to sit and soak in this a minute. And then we're going to sing the song again. And during that time, you can go and take communion. But hopefully I'll remember to tell you that as well. So enjoy the song.
come to the table now of communion of the Lord's Supper, remembering that you gave your body on behalf of the world. You gave your blood to cleanse us, to take away our sins, and to bring us into the family of God if we would receive it. So God, right now we we receive this. We receive the blood and body of Jesus on behalf of our sins and behalf of our rebellion, and thank you greatly for the exchange that takes place, that we have been called sons and daughters of God, that we have been made righteous and we've been justified and stand in rightness before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to sing the song again. Feel free to stand up, go back and partake of communion with me. Amen. You can have a seat. It's fantastic. Oh, I love getting to worship with you guys. Um, so after, well, at the end of the book of John, at the end of the book of, the, uh, the end of, book of John, we talked about this last week, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he, it says that he, he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He kind of blows this fresh wind on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Yet where we find them next is fishing. We find them eating lunch. Uh, or in the beginning of Acts, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, he has been crucified, he's raised from the dead. After the celebration of Passover, uh, records that the disciples are again eating meals with Jesus. They're hanging out with him and he's demonstrating to them again and again the, the various proofs that he is in fact risen from the grave. Now, maybe you've experienced Jesus in a similar way, uh, that we, you know, we take part in Passover, we take part in the communion, I mean, and, and we believe that he is risen, but now what? Like, what, what does this mean now for my life? And the disciples were right there with you. I want to I read something with you from the book of Acts. Uh, if you have a copy of the scripture, you can turn to it here. It's in Acts 1. And I want to encourage you maybe Read this this week, Acts 1 and 2, and look at what God does here. Um, But in Acts 1, 
in verse 4, after they're hanging out and having meals together, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he being Jesus, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, wait for the Spirit. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So why are they... Why are they doing this? Why are they asking this question about this kingdom? Receive the Spirit, they say, are you going to restore the kingdom? Well, it's connected to an overarching idea that we see all throughout uh, the scriptures, and, and particularly since the feasts have been put in place by God that they celebrated. You see, when, when Israel left Egypt, they did so in this dramatic fashion, right? They, they, they crossed through the Red Sea, through the, through the water, and the wind pushes it back, and then this dramatic thing happens, and the pillar of fire guides them to Mount Sinai, where 50 days later, they received this, this kind of renewed covenant with God that they were going to enter into the promised land if they would follow God and obey his, his commandments. And And God gives them these seven different holidays and tells them to celebrate them and remember them throughout the year, all that God had done for them and his faithfulness. And God told them at that time on Mount Sinai actually to fabricate this sort of special tent. If you remember where God's presence would come and dwell and they called it the tabernacle and had this ornate design to it and and was movable and they would take it with them throughout uh, the wandering through the desert and They would take the Ten Commandments and they would place them in this fancy wooden and gold box and they would place it inside the tabernacle and it was meant to be this holy place where God's presence would tangibly come and dwell in their midst. And and it says that when when they would camp, this, this pillar of fire would lead them by night and a pillar of cloud would come down and they would park the tabernacle underneath it and they would set it up and the Ten Commandments would enter into it and God's presence would come and dwell there and they would camp around the outside of it and they would, they would take the 12 tribes and they would put them in four segments around the tabernacle and they would raise up banners to signify which groups were where and there was a banner with a man's face on it, there was a banner with a lion on it for the Lion of Judah, there was a banner with an ox on it and there was a banner with an eagle on it. These are important things. You can just kind of file that away into your head. But they would gather around the presence of God there in their midst in the tabernacle. And the people would do their best to follow the covenant. And they would be his people and they would be, or they would be his people and he would be their God. And so eventually they move into the promised land, if you remember. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River through the water again into the promised land. And eventually they become a kingdom and and David and and work to raise money to build this incredible temple uh, there, this permanent structure. Now, rather than a movable tabernacle, it becomes this temple where it says that, that after they had built it and they had taken offerings and they cleansed it and they, had, they waited for God and God's presence came down in a dramatic fashion, you know, wind and strength and power, and it comes down and fills the temple. And the people just had nothing, they didn't know what else to do other than to bow down and worship because of this dramatic thing that was happening in their midst. And so they would celebrate the festivals there with the temple, and they would bring their offerings there, and they were God's people, and he was their God. But again, if you read on through the kings, you see that the people of Israel walk away again. Despite God's presence being there in a very tangible fashion, seeing all these great things happen, the people walk away, and they decide that they are going to worship themselves instead of this God. And they decide that they're going to serve themselves rather than the people around them. And what I said said before is that God allows them to be carried off into slavery. They're allowed to be moved into exile again. 
And scripture records that years later, the people were allowed to move back into the land and a segment of the population moves back into Israel. They decide to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. So they rebuild this temple and they try to reinstitute some of the laws and to to start celebrating these feasts again. But God's presence is never recorded as coming back to the temple. It remained empty. It remained hollow, sort of like their hearts, the prophets would say. So the temple is empty. The people are longing for God's presence to come back. And what we see is different prophets start to come and speak truth to the people of Israel and start to remind them of who they are. That this is not just about these religious acts that they're doing, but it's actually meant to be about their hearts. It's not just to be these religious duties, but it's about their hearts. And one of the prophets, Jeremiah, is called to the people who are in exile. And, and in, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah tells the people something about God's presence not being there and them not fulfilling the covenant. He says this, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband or though I was faithful to them. They weren't faithful to me. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So Isaiah is saying to them, listen, you're not keeping the covenant. We've never really been able to keep it at all. And it's been this external thing to us. A day is coming when God is going to place the covenant in your hearts. He's going to cause it to dwell inside of you. And it says, you're not going to have to teach people how to do this. You're all going to do it because it's going to work inside of you rather than you trying to keep some external thing. It's going to be inside of you. So the people are waiting for years for this new covenant to come. They're waiting for a new law that would be internal to them rather than an external. Or uh, Ezekiel is another kind of fiery prophet that comes to them. And, and he has this incredible vision of God's presence coming back to the temple. In, in Ezekiel 1, he, he starts to tell the people what it will be like when, the, when he sees the presence of God descending on the temple again. He says this, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. It gets totally bizarre here. Just listen to this. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved. Now listen to how he starts to describe kind of the spirit of God. He says, their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, and each also had the face of an eagle. So we start to see these images of Israel being tied together with the Spirit of God descending on the temple. He says, the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes 
of lightning. And then he says it sounded like water, like rushing water. So there's this, this crazy image of these creatures representing Israel, and it represents God's spirit. And there's wind coming, and there's fire, and there's lightning, and a sound like water. Hence the, the weird random imagery up here. It's, it's, it's an image of the spirit of God, of, of the water, of the, the pillar of fire, of the wind that always accompanies the spirit at work. And, and so Ezekiel is giving them this prophecy that the spirit of God, the presence of God is going to come back to the temple. So why am I telling you all of this? Because every year for hundreds of years, while the people of Israel would celebrate the Passover, when they would celebrate feasts of God like we just did and then 50 years or 50 days later they would celebrate another feast called the feast of weeks the priests in the temple would read from Ezekiel 1 he would they would read from Ezekiel 1 dreaming of the day that God's spirit would come back in a dramatic fashion to the temple with fire with wind with the cleansing of of water like what would it be like and year after year they waited for this to happen They would celebrate God's faithfulness through these traditions and yet wait for him to come back in the temple. So in Acts 1, this is what the disciples are asking Jesus when he says, wait in Jerusalem, I'll send my spirit to you. And they say, okay, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this when you're going to rebuild the temple in a dramatic fashion? Is this when God's presence is going to come back to Israel and put us on the throne again. We hear you do this, this amazing thing. You do these miracles. You're raised from the dead. You, clearly, you're the Messiah. You say, wait for the Spirit. Okay, now the time is coming. Now the Spirit's going to come back to the temple, and we're going to get to worship at the temple again. Rome's going to be kicked out, and life is going to be good again. But look what Jesus says to them. Or listen, in Acts 1, they ask him, is this when you're going to do this? And this is what he says. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're asking him, are you going to bring the Spirit back to the temple? And he says, actually, I'm going to give you the Spirit, and you're going to go, and you're going to decentralize this, and you're going to bring it out to the world. They're like, they ask one question, he gives them a totally different answer. Like They expect one thing, and he says, actually, I'm going to do something completely different than you ever realized. And what happens in chapter 2, is we see this come to fruition. Think about this. Chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So there's all these Jewish people in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost. Fifty days after Passover, they're celebrating the Pentecost, the the feast of bringing in the, 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 the grain to God. They're reading Ezekiel, waiting for God's spirit to come back with fire, with wind, with power into the temple. And Luke Luke records this. When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I don't know if you can grasp what's happening here, but this is what was spoken of by Ezekiel. This is what the prophet pointed to, that God's presence would come back in fire and wind and fall on the people, and, but rather than in a building. 
It would fall on the people. And they were empowered to then live as witnesses, to live as sent ones going out into the world, declaring who Jesus was. I mean, if you think about this, Peter goes on from here. The Apostle Peter goes on and starts delivering this incredible sermon where thousands of people repent and are redeemed by Jesus. When 53 days earlier, he was the same Peter that said, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know who Jesus is. And he cowers in fear. And by the Spirit of God moving into him, enables him to go and preach the gospel to the world around him. We see that disciples go out and they start teaching people. They start healing people. Like people, They're doing what Jesus did. We see them start loving one another and sharing everything that they have and being together as a family. And thousands upon thousands of people start coming to Jesus. Start knowing the gospel because the Spirit empowered them to do so. The friends, the friends, the Spirit of God was inhabiting them rather than a building. It was no longer about a centralized place of worship. It was meant to be worshipers going out, empowered by the Spirit, into the world. The law was no longer external to them, this thing they couldn't keep. By the Spirit, it was actually dwelling inside of them. And as Jesus was sent, they were sent and empowered by the Spirit to go and teach and preach the gospel. The Spirit of God no longer lives in a temple doesn't live in a place. He lives in you and me when we call Jesus Lord. When we say, I, I believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's, scripture says that the Spirit comes and fills us and empowers us for life and mission. To be godly people. The law was, was sent by God 50 days after Passover on Mount Sinai. and was external and impossible to keep. 50 days after Jesus' Passover, the Spirit comes and dwells inside of us and fulfills the law on our behalf. We don't have to keep it anymore. We can't keep it. Jesus kept it, and he now dwells inside of us and gives us the ability to live it out in the world around us. This is something that we'll flesh this out as we grow as a church. Like, there's so much to talk about with the Spirit and what it means to be empowered by him. But from a high level, I just want to cover a couple things. I'm just going to tease them out. You can read these scriptures this week if you want. What I believe is that the Spirit enables us, fills us, empowers us to live as a gospel-centered family on mission. We can't do that on our own, but the Spirit inhabits those who call him Lord and gives us the ability to do that. I think the Spirit comes and cleanses us and opens our eyes to see the gospel and to believe it. I think the Spirit guides us and, and, and puts the law in our hearts and enables us to love others, and I think the Spirit directs us in these sort of Totally bizarre way sometimes, the way God directs us, like a, like a wind filling a sail. He moves us when we put the sail up, and we go and we meet people and we tell people about Jesus. It's, it's a bizarre thing, but I want to cover a couple things real quick. In Romans 8, Paul says that, that the Spirit dwells inside of us and reminds us who we are. The Spirit dwells inside of us and reminds us who we are. Praise for us on our behalf, he says. And reminds us that we can call God Father. Says that we're no longer slaves, but we can call him Dad. We can call him Father. And there's this element of of the Spirit constantly opening our eyes and reminding us of the gospel. And, And I think he cleanses us and moves us into righteousness. And I think through the waters of baptism, Paul says that we are, we are baptized with Jesus. We are laid low with him and identify with his death. And when we come out of the water, we are raised to new life. This is all a work of the Spirit in us. It's nothing that we can do. I encourage you to read Romans 8 this week. 
In John 16, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying to the Father and asking that God would protect them. And he says to them that that the Spirit is going to come after he leaves and he's going to guide them into all truth. He's going to guide the disciples into all truth. Like the fire in the desert, like the pillar of fire that led the Israelites to the law, that led them to the new covenant, I think the Spirit is at work in those who call him Lord to empower us to understand the law of God. And not for righteousness' sake, righteousness' sake. Like it, it's it's already been fulfilled by Jesus. We get to understand the law and live out the full life of God, of what it looks like to love God and love others. When we believe that, and it guides us and cleanses us and constantly pushes us further and further into understanding what a life of love and devotion to the Father looks like, and that we can love the world around us when the world says to hate, that we can forgive the people around us when. People around when the world around us says to resent them, this is the work of God inside of us, giving us the ability to see the world like that. And then finally, in sort of this mystical sense, I think the Spirit guides us. Like I said, like a wind pushes a sailboat. If you read the book of Acts, you see this happen all over the place, that the Spirit does these totally bizarre things. And Luke records that, that Paul, when he tries to go someplace, he says, well, we couldn't go into this country because the Spirit forbade it. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but something said to that group of disciples that they weren't supposed to go into this place and this country at this time. The Spirit spoke to them some way, whether it was an audible voice, I don't know. I have a feeling it was probably more of an intuition, something that they knew inside of them that the Spirit did. Or the Spirit gives them dreams and says, gives them a dream of this man in Macedonia that they should go and bear the gospel to and to bring the gospel to them. And they think, well, okay, God's telling us to go to Macedonia. This is what the Spirit does. Does these things that are beyond our realm, beyond things that we can understand, encourages us to go and to be what? Ambassadors. Calls us to be sent once, to go out and bring the gospel, to bring the love of God to the world around us. So I would encourage you to read through Acts and see the work of the Spirit In the coming months and years, God willing, we will look more and more into what it looks like to be people of the Spirit. But I want to encourage us that in all of this identity series, that it's not something that we just power our way into. It's not something that we just self-will our way into and say, I'm I'm just going to do this. It's not. It's a work of the Spirit inside of us that opens our eyes and opens our hearts and minds to see Jesus for who he really is to believe the gospel and to take steps of faith, to move forward in acts of obedience and acts of servanthood to the world around us. It's the spirit that gives us the energy to even make an effort in the first place. It's the spirit that gives us the ability to be humble and to love the world around us and to serve them well. It's the spirit that gives us the ability to see God for who he really is and see us for who we really are to know that we are children of God, that we can call him Father, that we can call him Lord, that that he adopts us into his family. My prayer is that you would continue to, to journey with us in this and to see what it looks like to live this out. This is one of the reasons I care so much about community group because I can teach Sunday morning at a high altitude, but when it comes to actually living out as empowered people of the Spirit, it takes community to do that. So I just encourage you to consider getting into a community group that we're starting because... You can't do this on your own. You need people to walk with you in this journey. Okay, that was enough sidebar about community groups. Um, Yeah, I I just, I, I really ask that you would consider following Jesus in a non religious way, but in a relationship. 
and asking the Spirit to come and to fill you and empower you to live out the gospel that we've been talking about. Krista and Jody, would you guys come and and lead us? We're going to sing a song called Holy Spirit. I want you to know that we are a church uh, that believes that the Spirit moves and acts and does things, um, and so we welcome the Spirit here. Uh, Would you stand and sing with us as we close? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song together. Father, thank you that you no longer just reside in a place, in a location we have to go to, but by your spirit, you reside in all of us who call you Lord. Thank you that you empower us for life, for godliness, for mission, that you give us the ability to believe the gospel when when we're doubting it, that you give us the ability to love people when they're unlovable that you give us the ability to forgive and we don't want to forgive. God, would you, would you empower us now by your spirit to be a family on mission, centered on the gospel, going out into the world, telling people about all that you've done, the faithfulness to your people through all generations. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.